Welcome to PR360, a weekly interview podcast dedicated to talking about the important topics within the public relations technology industry, hosted by Brett Deister and in partnership with Global Results Communication. Find out more information at globalresultspr.com. And welcome to a new episode of PR360. And as always, I'm your host, Brett Deister. And if you could, please subscribe to PR360 on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and more. And with me this week is Ron Culp. And he is a veteran communication professional turned a PR academic after 40 years in a career for senior communication positions with four different Fortune 500 companies and heading regional offices of two major agencies. So he's got a wealth of knowledge for all of us. But welcome to the show, Ron. Well, it's good to be here. Thanks, Brett. And first question for all my guests that I usually say is, are you a coffee or tea drinker? Oh, my God. By all means, coffee. And some would call me a coffee snob since it must be fresh ground and it better be brewed within minutes of consumption. Mm-hmm. So why is that? Is that for the best type of flavor of it? Or is it just because that's how you really want it like that? A little longer story than that, but back before Starbucks branched out beyond Seattle, my wife and I opened a coffee store in Albany, New York, where we sold both coffee and tea. And since then, I've cut down from my dozen or so cups a day, but they better be good. And so I grind my own beans and usually find them, source them from all over the the country to uh, make sure that I'm trying the very best possible. And I just totally am addicted to this stuff. I owned the store for about five or six years and then moved to Lilly where in Indianapolis and had to give up the store, sold it to my best customer. And it still operates today with two stores, one in Albany and one across the river in Troy. Oh, nice. I used to be a barista for a independent coffee company that's actually not in business anymore, but I understand your whole getting it fresh ground and then basically brewing it at that time. Once you try it the real way, the good way, you you can't go to another kind of machine. And I'm offended if someone actually still uses a percolator. I prefer pour over if I can do it, but it takes like four minutes usually. Absolutely. Best way. But moving on to... Your career and everything is how hard was it to make a transition from being a reporter to a press secretary? Biggest challenge, I think, was transitioning from a reporter to press secretary was the kind of the turning of the tables. I went from the one asking the questions to the one answering the questions, a lot harder uh, chore. And I soon realized later that was far more difficult than anticipated, but probably one of the most valuable experiences of my life. Fortunately, there was a crusty old political reporter from the Indianapolis News by the name of Ed Ziegler. And Ed would come in to a press conference. Everyone would be terrified because he'd ask tough questions. But after my first news conference with my boss, Ed pulled me aside, unfortunately, in front of my boss, and absolutely ripped me apart for having written a press release, quoting my boss, having said something. 
that he didn't say in the press conference. And as a result of that experience, I became a fanatic about putting and tying political messaging and all messaging for that matter. It was probably a really valuable experience, even though at the time it was humiliating. Mm. So that basically made you stop ghost quoting or ghost writing for your boss. Absolutely. It was so tempting because you knew what you wanted him to say, but he better say it or there's going to be somebody like Ed Ziegler that's going to come along and say, you know, that's not true. And what was your secret behind some of your most successful campaigns? Oh, what would have been a secret? I think part of to create a successful campaign requires you to have a license from the client or your boss to how far can we go on the creative side of this. So often you're limited by budget and, and other factors. Some of the most successful efforts I've had basically had limitless budgets, and then you can really make things happen. But I kind of look back at the one that I really take crazy pride in was one that had just next to no budget whatsoever. It was for an exhibit at the Art Institute, which was an art exchange between the museums in Russia and the United States. It was the first such exhibit of its kind. So we really wanted to draw attention and make sure that people came to see this exhibit as being sponsored by Sarah Lee, which was my employer. So we brainstormed an idea and came up with, here's what we're going to do. We're going to have a taxi day. And we're going to invite every taxi driver in Chicago to come and have breakfast on us. But to get it, they had to walk through the exhibit and then they were given a box breakfast. So we didn't know what to anticipate. Well, we thought it might be a success after the first line of taxis showed up and we quickly ordered additional breakfast because we had hundreds of cabs. The traffic reports from the various news channels were covering the fact that what is going on at the Art Institute. As the taxi drivers left, we gave them 25 brochures and said, when you pick out up out-of-town guests at O'Hare or Midway, be sure to tell them about this exhibit. The exhibit was a phenomenal success. considered a real blockbuster. Everyone was talking about it. The crowds were enormous. So it was something we did for on the cheap, if you will, considering uh, that we were doing it for a nonprofit organization and a hunch that it might work. And it really turned out to be just something that a lot of people have since done. And I take particular pride in that. Of that. And with that success and actually having a very limited budget, did that help you try to train yourself to work with what you have? Very good point. You just literally need to always say, do I really need that much? Now, granted, when I worked in the agency world, we, of course, say we need more. Couldn't we have more? But very often, the biggest challenge and creator of great ideas is by, no, we only have this, and you're going to have to pull this off with a couple thousand dollars versus much more. So let's see what we can do creatively around that. And certainly, the Art Institute event was one of those that scored big time in what I consider a huge success on limited budget. 
Well, it is kind of a good testament to you and to other PR professionals to always try to work with what you have, even though we always want more budget. It's always good to try to like figure out how we can get the most out of our money, right? Absolutely. You're going to be both more creative and people are going to listen to you if every time you show up, you're not passing a tin cup asking for more money. And kind of moving on to kind of the universities and how have they kept up with the changing PR industry? Have they done a good job or are they still behind on the times? They're getting better. A lot of universities, because of proximity, if you happen to be in a location that is not near a big city or a big media market, it's very often harder to attract the kind of professional talent that will help build your program. You know, we're blessed at DePaul to be in Chicago, a city where there's more than 400 PR and advertising agencies. And in fact, there are 110 agencies within 10 blocks of our campus. So we're really able to actively engage, quite frankly, hundreds of professionals in our program. They're able to meet and see our students in action. They often will recruit them, bring them into their organizations. So it it really just creates some exciting opportunities, not only for the professionals who want to give back and be in a classroom setting and get that kind of energy from students, but for creating opportunities for our students. Hmm. And is there some weaknesses that professors at university could rethink when it comes to teaching the new generation of PR pros? Well, the key thing for professors to do is to try to get away from some of the academic bureaucracy that some organizations have that, that kind of hold you back from trying new things and involving professionals in your program. The decision-making in academia is not as bottom-line focused as in business. So colleges really need to look more broadly at how do businesses think? How do they operate? And how are we going to train and get our students and graduates to fit into this this new paradigm. If we don't, we're going to lose out to other professions. Hmm. Yeah, that's true. Now, since a lot of universities and colleges are now doing online learning, could this be a good tool to use for students to understand how to professionally do live streaming now and to do remote interviews for like media training? Could this could be a good learning tool for them? Essential learning tool. Online is absolutely critical for students. It's also critical for faculty to get more comfortable. Right now, faculty members are catching up because of COVID-19. We were basically told, okay, put everything online. And some schools, including ours, we had like two weeks of warning to move face-to-face classes to online. So I am so impressed with how universities made that happen. It was not easy. There are a lot of professors that panic over the experience and aren't comfortable at all and don't like it, but we just simply had to do it. So with that gun held to our heads, I think that we're going to see a lot more people adapting more quickly and embracing it than would have happened otherwise. 
Mm. Yeah, I mean, it seems like everything could be a good opportunity for learning experiences for students, especially new things that make professors uncomfortable. Well, I think, especially since I mostly deal with graduate students, I think part of their mission is to make a to be critical thinkers and to ask questions that are tough and to engage their professors. And so this what I found by moving my classes to online, I'm getting far greater interaction with the students as I'm looking at them on a screen than if I'm in a classroom where maybe I'm not laser focused on body language and can they understand the concept that you're trying to get across? Do they might might they be sitting on wanting to ask you a question but haven't raised their hand yet? So I find it's far easier to engage and call on students in the online format than maybe if you were in a bigger auditorium setting in a classroom. So basically you're saying is that online learning is more of an intimate way of teaching. Surprisingly for me, it really was. I thought that I would miss not being in the classroom. I do. I mean, I like the one-on-one relationships, but I'm finding that I'm building them even deeper in some regards with these students. And then we also go into one-on-one discussions in Zoom and other settings to to do follow-up conversations as teams break off. It's just phenomenal how easy it has been, at least for me, to make the transition to online. And I came kicking and screaming. Nice. That's a good perspective on how professors are transitioning and trying to pivot when they need to pivot, basically, and students as well. Yeah. As I said, I'm, I'm really proud of the academic profession as a whole for being able to adapt. Now, some have not done it as well, but all have tried and they've known they were faced with having to do it. And as a result, some of us who, as I said, were not really keen on wanting to do it because we prefer to be in the classroom one-on-one, have actually come away from this experience far more energized about the potential in the future. Hmm. And moving back to more about your career, as you've led some agencies and several Fortune 500 companies, what are some common mistakes leaders make when creating the messaging strategy? Well, there's a lot of them, but I would say the biggest mistake leaders often make is trying to create messaging that supports what they want their stakeholders to believe rather than what those stakeholders want and need to hear. I'll give you an example. Drugs used to be recalled and banned pretty regularly back when pharmaceutical companies were putting out a product and all of a sudden there would be some unexpected side effects, et cetera. So along comes somebody with the ingenious invention of safe if used as directed which is now part of the nomenclature for almost all drug products. And it really changed the perspective because it got people to think that I ought to be aware of the side effects profile of the drugs that I take. And granted, there's product information, warnings, and everything else. Sometimes it'll scare you to death if you read it. But it also gave a defense to the industry 
when all of a sudden somebody died. And they'll point out that, it, you know, it, it's terrible, it's tragic, but it is in the literature that it benefits the outweighing of the benefits versus the side effects is why you're taking that product. And most people will be fine. So people will then start understanding that those little nuances in terms um, early on came about. Now, today, it's COVID-19. When, as a good example, when everyone knows there's a problem with testing, leaders can't say that there are plenty of tests or that everybody who wants a test is going to receive a test. Well, we know that's not true. People want to hear and believe the last part of that statement. When they know it's false, all credibility for that leader is lost. So those are the messages that I'd want to get across, and I certainly took from business, is you can't just say black if indeed it's either gray or white. You have to make sure that your stakeholders are in agreement or see your point, or they're not going to believe you and you have no credibility. So it seems like from your earlier career, when you were talking about writing what your boss said, it's the same thing here about the strategy of make sure you're saying exactly what is correct and not trying to elude that there might be more testing or whatever. That's really an interesting point. I hadn't drawn it back to my earlier days, but it's exactly that. I mean, I would sometimes be faced in some other jobs where a boss would say, or not necessarily a boss, I don't think a boss ever directed me to say anything that was not factual, but maybe somebody who was a brand team or whatever said, can't you just tell them this? And I'm like, no, that's not true. And they said, well, that's our intent. And I'm like, no, intents are not true. So we'd have arguments as to what can you say? You have to say it either has to be accurate or a public relations person is not your lifeline to keep critics away. So let me be factual what we say and try to explain how we got here versus saying something is true that's not. Mm-hmm. And what do you think are some of the most important measurements that senior management should care about when it comes to PR? Senior management, what I love about what's happened in the past 10 years has really happened more dramatically in the past five, is that public relations function has taken a far more significant role in most companies, most organizations for that matter. That proverbial seat at the table that we talked about for generations has actually been given to us. So they're listening. They know that we can help with messaging. And messaging is absolutely critical, especially in a crisis situation. And we've proven that today that the most credible people that we're seeing in television and in government are the people who are able to communicate effectively. And their credibility is far greater than those who have difficulty giving us straight facts or information that we fully understand and say, aha, I get it. I understand it. Gotcha. And for live streaming and podcasting, has this changed the way PR pros message their customers now since they can have a little bit more of a direct feed to them and don't have to rely on the media as much? The ability for organizations 
to live stream and get their messages directly to their stakeholders has made a quantum advancement in communications. We, we now find that these vehicles are actually competition to mainstream media. And in some cases, they actually complement. And when the two are aligned, meaning I'm getting the same messages or the same context from both, the credibility of that information skyrockets. And that's the sweet spot that communicators want to be in. Mm-hmm. And how has recent events changed the way the PR pros and PR industry messaging to customers? How do you think that's changed and how do you think it will change in the future? Messaging in the future is going to be far more tailored to audience segments and organizations are going to say, here are our major stakeholders. We're going to be laser focused on giving information that is critically important to those stakeholders. What I find very exciting that's come as a result of this, it was evolving anyway, is the commitment that companies are making towards their employees has made a quantum leap forward. I remember when I started out in public relations, everything was media relations. Media relations, how are you going to get placements? How are you going to sell products? And today, the number one request I get from recruiters and others looking for talent are for people who are effective in employee communications, employee engagement, change management, functions of public relations that you know have always been important but weren't really the kind of talent that companies and agencies were bringing on board in record numbers. Today, I think we can place every internal communications person that we graduate. So what you're saying is that there's more of a need for employee relations than the outward look of it. Yes, the push towards creating more communications tailored or what our employees need to hear. I work really hard, that CEO is saying, to create the organization that I have. It's working, assuming it is. I want to make sure that I maintain that employee base that I have. I can't allow my competition to come and cherry pick the talent that I have. So I've got to make sure the talent I have understands what our mission is and can communicate it to their colleagues and either supervisors and subordinates so that everyone gets on the same page. And this all comes through the ability to communicate, create messaging that is understood by your entire employee base. If that aligns with messaging, the external team is also doing with outside audiences. Again, that's where the magic comes from in communications. And do you think this could actually springboard into a bigger push in maybe employee influencers as opposed to the outside influencers that you have to get and sign contracts on and everything? Internal influencers, employees, definitely the fact that that has grown so significantly. And I would say that's happened. It's it's been growing, but it's really clicked in over the past few years and dramatically so as a result of COVID-19 in the fact that we 
have to demonstrate and prove ourselves. The companies that are saying we're trying to save all of our employees, they're organizations that are losing significant sums of money that have made decisions that these employees are lifeblood when we come out of this. So let's belt tighten whatever we have to do in order to hold on to the people who are going to make the comeback for this organization occur post-COVID. That is something that in the past, sorry, we're going to have to downsize. We're going to have to eliminate significant jobs and that often just wipe out a lot of the institutional memory that then took them so much longer to come back after than it did when they were able to maintain their teams. A couple of agencies, for instance, during the financial crisis that decided to, hey, we're not going to lay people off. We're going to try to bear through this tough time. And what happened? They're the first agencies that rebounded in big ways and showed the biggest percentage increases because they were able to hit the ground running when the crisis was averted. Mm. And kind of moving on to more about how these recent events have actually affected relationships with the PR pros, because we keep on hearing how more and more PR pros wanted to be one-on-ones and face or actually meet for coffee or whatever. And now the recent events have basically made this non-existent. So has there been a negative aspect to relationship building or maintaining? COVID has basically created a need for you to be more creative and how you build those relationships. Some networks have actually been more effective. I preach constantly that my students have to have before they graduate 500 plus LinkedIn connections. And I follow it. I want to make sure. And if, and do you have a good page? How are you using it? If you meet somebody, are they going in with all virtual classes now? Almost all of our classes have outside guest speakers. And I asked the guest speakers, did all 16 of my students link in with you afterwards with a thank you note? And if not, then I'll remind them the following week that that's the responsibility. This is how you're going to build your network. So I think that there is an online ability to create that network. One of the problems that, that happens is that one-on-one, the informational interviews, that existed when you were able to get in to see somebody, actually were fewer and far between than we're finding now by the fact that through LinkedIn, if you have a second, can I chat with you? Or can we engage in an online discussion? And sometimes it's just email. So I probably in the good old days did one informational interview every couple of days. Today, I do five or six. The potential of, of having a conversation and providing some help for people has actually escalated as a result of the fact that we are now, interestingly enough, at home, but probably working more hours, working real hours than we did when we had to commute to the office. Mm. And do you think with COVID-19 and everything, there's been a bigger emphasis in crisis calm for all businesses right now moving forward? Well, before COVID-19, 
I saw one survey that said that 60% of corporations indicated they had crisis plans, which I thought was woefully low. I would say when we come out of this crisis, the people, when uh, the companies, when they're, they're asked if they have a crisis plan, 100% are going to have a crisis plan. So it caused a lot of companies to create one, even if they didn't have one. So Chicken Little was proven right. And now everyone's scrambling to make sure they have a crisis plan. So when and if this happens again, that they're covered. It also seems like crisis calm plans will actually now have pandemic in it as well. Absolutely. Everything was so product focused and financial focused that we really, and maybe depending on if there was a union involved, there was a labor focus, but the healthcare challenges of a pandemic, I would say are in maybe 5% of the crisis plans that I've seen. And what do you think, or what changes do you want to see in the PR industry? Well, it's happening as we speak. PR is becoming more and more a strategic partner to management. Certainly the role of the chief communications officers being elevated since they're really the closest to being able to effectively communicate with all stakeholders, especially employees, as we mentioned earlier. I think employee engagement has certainly moved to the top of every executive's priority list, and that's where it should be. So I think that the employee is going to have a whole different level of respect and engagement within an organization than they had prior to COVID-19. That's why I want them to hold in. I want the companies that are doing especially good job in this area to be thanked and recognized whenever you see it happening is send a note to that CEO or the head of a nonprofit that is going through just turmoil and making the same kind of tough decisions because they have a board of directors that is somehow going to make it happen that we hold on to that staff. We might have to change some things we do, but we want to maintain the quality product that we're doing. And those decisions are tough. And and companies and organizations that do it ought to be lauded for it. And what advice do you have for graduating students getting into the PR field? Be patient. Use this downtime wisely. Build your network. Every student, as I said earlier, should have at least 500 LinkedIn connections by the time they graduate. And I'd say, you know, think back to the elementary school, if you want to succeed in public relations in the future, think back to those basics, probably in second or third grade. Now it's probably first grade or kindergarten. Reading, writing, arithmetic. Consume as much media as possible. Become a strong writer and get comfortable with business basics. It is so many people are just lacking one of those three. If you master those three, you're going to be a rock star in public relations. All right. Any final thoughts for our listeners? Well, let's just say that this too shall pass, COVID. And I think the after the current crisis subsides, I would encourage people not to get complacent. Be aware that there will be others. And always look forward and make sure you're constantly learning and staying on top of industry trends. 
and have passion for what you do. And if you have all of those qualities and, and you really understand how to write, how to consume media, ask good questions, and know how businesses operate, you're going to have a golden career. All right. And thank you, Ron, for joining us in PR 360. We really appreciate all your insight and knowledge in the PR field. It's been a pleasure uh, spending time with you today, Brent. And thank you to our listeners for subscribing to PR360. And if you haven't yet, please go to Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and more, and hit that subscribe button. And join us next week as we talk to a great thought leader in the PR field. Stay safe and have a good week. See you next week, guys. Okay, later.